We begin here this morning with the news breaking overnight, a string of deadly storms that swept across the southeast. With yet more intense heat in the U.S. this week, forest fires in many western states can be seen from space. The worst case projections have parts of Boston and Manhattan underwater. In the remote Pacific nation of Kiribati, it's already happening. Homes have been swept away by the rising seawater. Over and over, we are seeing the effects of climate change wreak havoc on our communities. And last month, there was yet another dire warning on the climate crisis. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has hailed a major new report on climate change as a survival guide for humanity. It starts with parties immediately hitting the fast-forward button on their net-zero deadlines to get to global net-zero by 2050. It is, the UN says, a ticking time bomb and that humanity is on thin ice. 40% of climate emissions come from the built environment, so without real estate's commitment to making some real change, catastrophe will not be averted. What the industry is actually doing in the face of this climate crisis is the subject of BizNow Reports today. In this bonus episode, we're discussing the findings of a major investigation BizNow undertook over several months to examine the kinds of planning the biggest real estate companies in the world have put into place to reduce emissions. BizNow's analysis showed that almost half of the world's biggest real estate investors, which between them own or control more than $1.2 trillion worth of property, have no target to reduce the carbon emissions from their portfolios. That means of real estate's 75 largest institutional investors, listed companies and investment managers, 32 have no overall plan to reduce the amount of carbon they put into the atmosphere. New York reporter Kira Long was one of the writers on the piece. What we wanted to see from these companies was something similar to the commitments that governments have made with the Paris Accords. So a lot of governments have said, we will be net zero by 2050. We wanted to see a commitment to decarbonizing by a certain point in time from these companies. What kind of data set on real estate investors' plans to cut emissions was available for, before this story? There wasn't really a data set. You know, a lot of companies had their own sustainability promises. They have they, these reports they've been putting out every year, but there wasn't really like a comprehensive picture of what companies were doing what and how they compared to their competitors. So what we wanted to do was really make that comparison. And it turns out the way to do that is going through all of the sustainability reports that these companies produce and going through their investor relations reports and pulling what we can from there about what their public commitments to sustainability are. Sustainability is, as a word is kind of thrown out all the time in the real estate sectors. So for those who don't have a plan, are they doing anything at all? One of the reasons that I was interested in this story in the first place is because I've done a fair amount of reporting on climate and commercial real estate in New York City. And something that everybody tells me again and again and again is that sustainability practices are smart investments. What I was curious about is who had actually acted on that in a substantial way. In terms of what we did see, a lot of companies had net zero goals. Others just said things like, we're going to be carbon neutral or climate neutral. And those are pretty different things to net zero. A series of articles will examine the subjects of regulation, carbon offsets, tenant emissions, and the emissions produced through building and construction. 
Online, you can use the interactive data visualization tool to analyze which organizations do and do not have decarbonization targets, which of those targets don't include big chunks of emissions, how fast companies are looking to decarbonize and who is and isn't using offsets to hit their targets. The analysis is one of the most in-depth studies yet on how the largest companies in real estate are going about the process of reducing carbon emissions. And our UK editor, Mike Phillips, led the reporting. Mike, you've been reporting on commercial real estate for a long time and climate, the climate crisis is, is well established at this point. How do you think companies are getting away with this? I don't think we found any companies or maybe one or two that didn't address sustainability and kind of cutting carbon emissions in some way, shape or form. Uh, you know, everyone has a, a sustainability document, an ESG report, and a lot of them, you know, are doing some fairly substantial stuff in terms of getting green certifications for buildings or for entire portfolios um, and, and seeking to cut things. But there's a big difference between doing things in an ad hoc way, um, you know, for individual buildings and doing things for a portfolio. Um, you know, if you look at any of the kind of UN reporting and the sort of uh, the, the the sort of climate science out there, this needs to be sort of systemic and comprehensive rather than ad hoc. And and that's where, as Kira says, a lot of these things fall down in terms of not having a target for the entire portfolio to cut the majority of emissions. So without that kind of systemic, and as you pointed out, Miriam, that public um, commitment, because you know part of the point of this project was you know, to look at the difference between the press releases and the public pronouncements and what's actually happening in in practice. So, you know, if you make a publicly stated commitment, you can be held to account to that and it can be tracked and, and, and sort of measured. So um, that's why we decided to look for those sort of public commitments for an entire portfolio being, being decarbonised. Of the 25 pension funds and sovereign wealth funds analysed, 10 did not have a decarbonisation target. Of the 25 largest REITs, 7 didn't have a decarbonisation target. Among investment managers, 15 didn't have a decarbonisation target. Jacob Wallace was also a reporter on the story. Jacob, let me go to you. The, the worst offenders in this report seem to be fund managers. Can you give me a sense of the companies that do not have a goal in place or have not put a, a goal out there publicly? Right. So it was interesting. Um, we reached out to you know 75 firms, including 25 fund managers, and 15 of those uh, just did not want to uh, give us a decarbonization target. So some of those fund managers just said straightforwardly, we're not going to comment at all. Some of them didn't respond to us, even though we reached out a bunch of different times and in different ways. And really what that means is essentially that you know, they didn't want to be on the record about a particular commitment that they could, uh, you know, be held accountable to when it comes to decarbonizing their portfolios. So sometimes these firms um, did have literature out there about sustainability and the commitments that they wanted to make. Absolutely, it's a it's a word and it's a word that has marketability to it. But, you know, in terms of what they're actually willing to do, to ensure that they are, you know, and using the most sustainable practices, there wasn't as much literature or uh, commitment there. What is it about fund managers that made them so unwilling to put something out there? I think the particular point about fund managers is if you think of a fund manager of any scale, and you know we're measuring the twenty-five biggest, you know, if someone's got 
50, 100, 200 billion in assets under management. There's a lot of investors that have given their money and fund managers can't just kind of institute a a kind of net zero policy um, unilaterally. They've got to kind of coordinate and, you know, engage in dialogue uh, with the, with those investors and make sure you know what they are going to promise for the for the portfolio aligns with with those investors and that is a that is a difficult process it's a time consuming process uh, as you know Laura Brill head of ESG at a UK fund manager called Orchard Street sort of pointed out in the course of our reporting you know if you're a listed company you can't just sort of go about things unilaterally but if someone if you put in place a policy on ESG that um, shareholders don't like, they can just sell the shares. It's not quite that simple for fund managers. Um, that being said, it is not beyond the wit of, of humanity. You know, it's not beyond the realms of the possible to undertake that process of engagement and, you know, coordinate with those investors um, and come up with a with a policy. And obviously our reporting shows that and evidences that in the fact that there are 15 fund managers that didn't uh, have a have a kind of net zero target or decarbonisation target of some sort, but there are 10 that are. So, you know, people have, and among those are some of the biggest fund managers in the world. So it is, it is possible. Um, and what I would, what I would kind of extend on that is obviously those investors, the kind of pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds, the, the insurance companies that typically give money to fund managers in the form of you know mandates to invest for them or that buy the shares of listed companies you know they have an absolutely huge role to 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 sort of play in this debate and i think we found that about 10 of those didn't have a a decarbonization decarbonization target ultimately those investors in the fact that they control the money in the or in the uh, in the industry they're the ones who set the agenda so if all of those investors said to the people they are giving money to you need to have a decarbonization plan a net zero plan or we are not going to give you any money um everyone would uh, everyone would sort of get in line pretty quickly um so while there was you know a greater number of those fund managers that didn't have a have a decarbonisation target. Um, those pension funds and investors have an absolutely vital role. So the fact that ten of those didn't have a, a plan is is possibly the more the more worrying statistic um, and the, and the sort of more worrying finding in that you know they are the ones who set the tone for for the industry. Who are they? So in terms of some of those companies that don't have it or. It, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds that don't have a decarbonisation plan. It's some of the most famous names in, in real estate. So the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, the Qatar Investment Authority, Singapore's GIC. Um, so some huge investors that are putting tens of billions of, uh, of dollars into real estate every single year and have portfolios that are directly owned that, you know, sort of total 50, 50 billion dollars plus around the world. Then you've got some of the some of the Asian investors like the North, uh, the National Pension Service of Korea, but then some of the um, some of the kind of U.S. Uh, superannuation municipal retirement funds, the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, the Washington State Investment Board, um, are among those that don't that don't have an investment plan. So these are these are huge organisations. Mike, you mentioned public companies. Kira, let me ask you: in terms of the REITs, 
How many have public plans out there to reduce their emissions? So one example we have is Seagro, which is a UK-based company. They had a net zero by 2030 goal, which puts them ahead of UK regulations. And that goal also includes not just tenant emissions, but also emissions from embodied carbon, which is the carbon involved in making your building. That put them you know, well ahead of a lot of other, a lot of other companies. Another good example is Prologis, who have a net zero by 2040 goal, which puts them ahead of US regulations. And they also account for both embodied carbon and tenant emissions. Um, one finding amongst a lot of REITs um, and a lot of the companies we looked at is that they do also use carbon offsets, whether that's through carbon sequestration, through like planting trees, or whether that's purchasing offsets. A lot of companies say the reason for doing that is because they need to reduce their carbon output somehow. And not all the mechanisms are in place for them to do that yet. So this is a temporary solution. A skyscraper powered fully by renewable energy is coming to New York. J.P. Morgan Chase announced plans for its new global headquarters and all-electric building on Park Avenue. Officials say the tower will have net zero operational emissions. Other green features include triple glaze windows and systems that store and reuse water, which should reduce consumption by about 40%. The nearly 60-story skyscraper is scheduled to be completed by 2025. Jacob, let me come back to you. Beyond the large absence of, of targets, your reporting also showed that most firms don't actually give much regard to things like the building process, the things like what their tenants actually emit. That seems like a massive oversight. Right. So one of the big issues with commercial real estate emissions is what's technically called scope three emissions. Uh, and so scopes one and two and three are basically terms that the world uses to understand, okay, where is that carbon coming from? Who's technically responsible for it? Uh, and it's kind of this process that's been around for, I think at this point, decades. Um, I'm just going to say decades. Um, but yeah, so it's a process that's been around for decades to measure uh, carbon emissions. And so for commercial real estate, something like 90% of um, these firms' emissions are scope three, which are indirect emissions that come from either downstream or upstream clients. So that's your tenants in your apartments or offices, or it's the embodied carbon, so the carbon used for buildings. Uh, and so, yeah, what we found was that uh, by and large, most of these firms are not addressing their scope three emissions. And that is what they really need to be focusing on in order to actually decarbonize the industry. One of your sources said that in, if you're not doing that, you may as well be doing nothing. You know, scope, scope three is one of those terms that, you know, if you are not deeply ensconced in the kind of climate world, you know, it, it's, it's jargon, isn't it? It's sort of gobbledygook. And it's, it's the sort of word that can easily make people turn off and kind of go to sleep slightly so what what we tried to do in the reporting was you know we probably do use the word too much but what we tried to do in the reporting is you know bring it into the realm of reality and point out that for a real estate company the vast majority of their emissions come from um tenants and actually building building new buildings and so and, you know, if you think of a company like Lendlease, they've made sort of public disclosure. They're a sort of construction and development company. Ninety nine percent of their emissions come from come from uh, come from construction and development. So, you know, putting it in that language of, you know, it's not scope three. It is tenants and it is building new buildings. 
um, hopefully kind of brings home what the real estate industry does need to do. And a lot of that is around um, systemic change. So it's not just about really great stuff um, going on in terms of making low carbon concrete or low carbon steel, um, but nothing's as good as kind of not using concrete and steel, not creating, because it's not no carbon concrete or no carbon steel, it still does emit carbon, whereas the building that has already been built um, is is the is the most carbon efficient one because that car that steel and concrete already exists but that is a that is a sort of quite radical systemic change for an industry which has always made money by taking a building and knocking it down and building something slightly bigger on the uh, on the on the same footprint if there's if there's demand there for it so a fairly systemic change needs to happen and to tie that back to your question about regulation Miriam if you look at the city of London which you know you can absolutely say that is an example of an area of the world that has just been focused on growth and money for its entire existence for the last half millennium you know the city of London has just been about growth and expansion they're bringing in new regulation that says in order to build a new building you're going to have to show us what the carbon emissions would be compared to compared to retrofitting the existing building and they haven't explicitly said that they will you know reject zoning applications and reject planning applications for build for new buildings that you know are pumping a lot of carbon out from building a new building but you know they said in their in their sort of uh, release on that law you know that model of building something new and start or knocking something down and starting from scratch is not going to be permissible in that zone anymore and as Jacob made the very eloquent point, you know, that's only one city that, you know, this needs to be sort of cohesive and a systemic change in the industry from which may come from regulation externally, but also a change in sort of the business model of uh, commercial real estate to sort of adopt the changes that need to that need to happen. The whole point of this reporting is that we are in, in a climate crisis that is appearing more and more catastrophic every day. I mean, is there a sense of urgency from from these companies that are responsible for 40% of greenhouse emissions? I think there is a growing sense of urgency. The question for humanity would be, is that sense of urgency enough for us to mitigate the the worst impacts of of global warming. So, you know, we reference it throughout the kind of articles that we've written. Earlier this month, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put out a report uh, which stressed just how urgent this is. You know, I think the debate has moved on from the question of, you know, to what degree is global warming and climate change man-made? You know, the science is there. It exists. It's humanity that's creating it. It's to what degree will it affect humanity and what can we do to avert it? And this report stressed that the target, you know, things are more serious than we realised. Um, you know, a lot of those governments have put in place those 2050 net net zero targets. This said, actually, you know, it probably needs to be closer to 2040 to to really avert the the sort of worst impacts on on humanity. Um and, you know, it stressed it can be done, but action needs to be taken now. And what I would, if I had to gloss the findings of our report, is that there is a growing sense of urgency. Julie Hiragoyan, the 
chief executive of the UK Green Building Council, made the point that more has happened in the last two years than had happened in the previous 25 years of her working in the in the climate industry. It's just whether that urgency is enough. Um, I think the fact that, you know, coming on for half of these companies didn't have a target at all. And as I think we're going to touch on those targets in a lot of cases actually emitted 90% of all emissions that come from the average commercial real estate company suggests that, you know, that urgency isn't enough. Um, and it's, and it's, at the moment, as you know, some of our reporting point, points out, without regulation, um, a lot of this is is kind of voluntary. Um, and this is not to shift the burden from uh, companies themselves onto regulators, but several of the responses to to our inquiries, you know, about things like. Do you count the emissions of tenants in your target? Do you count the activity from construction and development? Said, no, we do not. And when regulators force us to, we will do that. So, you know, as I say, I don't want to shift the burden from the real estate industry onto regulators. But these are financial actors. You know, they respond to the external stimuli of things like finance, but also government regulation. And so if regulators you know, they can't push too far, too fast, you know, because change, you know, is is difficult. Um, but if regulators did actually prompt companies to act differently, they would act differently. They have told us that in our in our reporting and through this through this article. So that sense of urgency, I think, isn't enough um, and could be sort of precipitated by sort of better and also clearer regulation. Who is regulating this? I mean, Kira, let me discuss with you first. In New York, for example, where we are, there's Local Law 97, which will fine companies if they don't reduce their emissions. Shortly, there is regulation around the world that's becoming more stringent, not less. And Mike, as you said, these companies have told you if there was laws in place, they'd have to comply with them and they would. So in the US, there's local regulation. Like you mentioned, there's Local 97. I know there's also regulation in DC that Jacob can talk about. Overall, these companies are largely reporting to national governments in the countries where they're domiciled. Um, so, for example, the US has made commitments um, in line with the Paris Accord to be net zero by 2050. So a lot of companies are aspiring to that standard. Um, I believe there's a different target date in the UK. The UK has the same agreement as the US. So companies are generally looking, again, to that 2050 date. There are a few companies that we found that are looking to dates well before that, but overall what we found was that these companies' policies tend to line up with what regulators say they have to do. When we talk about national regulations, one of the things that's been proposed is the SEC's, sorry, the Security and Exchange Commission's uh, green disclosure rules, which at this time is still a draft. It hasn't been implemented yet. And it's definitely controversial in the industry. Um, there were certainly organizations like NAREIT that came out against some of the portions of the proposed rule, um, especially disclosure of scope three emissions. Um, and so, you know, but what we heard from some of these companies is that they would only begin tracking scope three even when they're required to. Brookfield, for instance, essentially said that exactly. They said, you know, when there is a legal requirement to do so, uh, and or there is an industry standard, we will disclose scope three emissions. Um, so it just goes to show you that there's an understanding out there 
by some of these companies of you know what needs to be done, uh, there just needs to be pressure to do it essentially. Um, in DC, there's actually examples of you know uh, local regulations that encourage more green building practices. So in 2006, Washington DC began requiring certain buildings to abide by LEED standards, and um, since then it's become basically common practice for a lot of these large buildings in the city. And, you know, again, that regulation began in 2006 and preceded one of the largest booms in the commercial real estate industry in Washington, D.C. So it's not like it prevented any, you know, companies from doing business. It certainly made it maybe a little bit more costly, sure, but they were still able to do it. And they're still able to have a lot of success building in that market. And D.C. is still passing regulations related to emissions now. Uh, right now, they are implementing building energy performance standards. And so as it stands, buildings that are larger than 50,000 square feet are required to reduce their emissions by 20% over the next three years or so. And so that will you know, help contribute towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions in commercial real estate. But again, you know, that's one city. And so there needs to be more commitment across the board um, from jurisdictions and from companies as well to address these things. Let's end on a hopeful note. What kind of glimmers of progress did you see in this reporting? What stood out to you? So in terms of, you know, understanding what can be done, especially for those scope three, those emissions that are really hard to, to deal with, uh, you know, there are certainly places where we're starting to see people reuse uh, building materials or, you know, find ways to reuse buildings. Obviously, the whole office to residential conversion trend is uh, complicated and it is, but it is happening in some places, right? And there are also places where there is innovation being done um, for building deconstruction as well. Uh, San Antonio in September passed an ordinance that essentially requires certain buildings to be deconstructed so that their materials can be reused. Right now that just applies to residential buildings, but the ordinance is specifically supposed to be scaled up to commercial buildings over time. And this is all brand new. Obviously, it's um, stuff that's cutting edge and we're still trying to understand how to do better. But, you know, I mean, that's what we want to see is, you know, I, I would argue that that's what um, people want to see is more innovation uh, in regards to figuring out this very complex problem that affects everyone, essentially. And I, and I would just add to that. I mean, in terms of in terms of what the what the reporting sort of highlighted you know, we've we've sort of stressed in our reporting, you know, we've focused on the fact that, um, you know, close to half, you know, it's, I think it's 43% of those companies and organisations that we analysed didn't have a decarbonisation target. Um, and, you know, maybe, the, you know, people in the industry would possibly, you know, accuse us of, you know, journalists are always negative and always looking for the sort of um, adversarial headline. What I would say to that is, you know, we are doing this to hold the industry to account and try and bring transparency to what is actually happening in reality. And as multiple experts that we spoke to said, you know, the more transparency there is in this area, you know, the better things will will get. So hopefully in, you know, sort of highlighting the schism between, you know, what is being said and what is actually happening, you know, bring some of that transparency and, and you know, hopefully brings about change without being too sort of highfalutin in terms of outlining what we wanted to do. But also, you know, while 42% of those um 42% of those companies, 43% didn't didn't have a target, 57% did. And while a lot of those companies um didn't, you know, 
include those scope three emissions in that target. Um, twelve of them, twelve of them did. Twelve of them said no. We are we are including both tenant emissions and um, embodied carbon in our in our decarbonisation target. And one of them I found very interesting was Norge Bank, the big Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. They said we don't have a clue how. Well, this is they put it more politely than this. They basically said we don't know how we're going to eliminate scope three emissions. The science isn't there. You know, the technology isn't there in terms of embodied carbon. Loads of our tenants don't have to tell us what their emissions are, and it's quite hard to engage with them. But we're putting this in the target and we're going to make sure we work out how to do it. Um, so just kind of saying, oh, this is really hard, um, you know, isn't isn't really good enough. You know, they're saying this is hard and that's why we're going to do it and because it's important. And so the fact that companies are starting to do that shows that it is not impossible. Um, and so if the right levers are pulled between finance and you know the sort of finance flowing towards the companies that are more sustainable um, and regulation it shows it can be done it's just whether it happens fast enough Thank you to reporter Kira Long, Jacob Wallace and UK editor Mike Phillips. Their series of articles as well as data visualisation is at biznow.com. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.